You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We've been discussing the doctrine of limited atonement, and in our last session we finished with the four specific categories in terms of which the Scripture sets forth the atoning work of Christ, according to the theologian John Murray. He lists the following, sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. So, Dr. Spencer, how would you like to proceed today? Well, we've covered what is meant by atonement, which is a far more comprehensive and glorious term than many modern Christians realize. But we now have to deal with that troublesome word, limited. And, of course, the only other options to a limited atonement would be either no atonement at all or a universal atonement. That's very true. We will ignore the logical possibility of no atonement because the whole of biblical Christianity deals with the fact that God saves his people— and therefore has atoned for their sins. If God didn't provide an atonement for our sins, then everyone, without exception, would be doomed to hell. But we need to deal with the other possibility. There are people, even some professing Christians, who believe that ultimately everyone will be saved, which would require that the atonement be universal rather than limited. But such a notion is completely unbiblical. Although, shockingly, even the current Pope believes in universal salvation. He certainly seems to. The apostolic exhortation he wrote soon after becoming Pope in 2013, called Evangelii Gaudium, which means the joy of the gospel, displays his universalism rather clearly by speaking of God's love to all men without distinction and by saying that Jews and Muslims worship the same God as Christians— I've written a brief analysis of the Pope's exhortation, which is available on the web. It's useful to see how a humanist philosophy can cause a person to pervert the gospel. And the link is in a footnote to this podcast transcript. And the Pope's view is shocking because, as you noted, the idea of universal salvation is completely unbiblical. For example, we read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, that Jesus himself said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And of course, Jesus is speaking in that passage about eternal destruction and eternal life. He makes that absolutely explicit in the 25th chapter of Matthew, where he talks about the final judgment. We read in verses 32 and 33, quote, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the sheep represent Jesus' chosen people, for whom he is the good shepherd, as he tells us in John chapter 10, verse 11. That's right, and continuing with Matthew chapter 25, In verse 34, we read that Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But to those on his left, the goats, we read in verse 41 that he will say, 
Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Unquote. And he makes the eternal nature of both completely clear in verse 46, where he says that those who are cursed quote, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. People don't like the idea that anyone is cursed by God, but it is a clear teaching of Scripture. Yeah, many people will deny it because they don't like it, but we can't let what we like and don't like determine what we think is true. We need instead to change what we like and don't like to conform to what God says is good and true. We are all rebels who deserve to be cursed by God, but the amazing thing is that he chooses to save some but he does not save everyone. And there are many more scriptures that show that the idea of universal salvation is completely unbiblical. For example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, John wrote, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And in verse 15, he wrote that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, unquote. He also tells us that the lake of fire is the second death. In other words, it is not just the physical death of this body, it is eternal death, it is hell. In verse 10 of that chapter, he called it a lake of burning sulfur. He wrote, quote, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. That is the most terrifying thought imaginable. It certainly is. We need to be serious about our salvation. And this question about how the atonement is limited is a very important question. We've dismissed the idea that Christ didn't atone for the sins of anyone, and we've shown that the idea that Christ atoned for the sins of everyone is unbiblical. So now it's time to look at the precise way in which Christ's atonement is limited. And although the phrase, quote-unquote, limited atonement is usually associated with Reformed or Calvinistic theology, the truth is that all true Christians believe that Christ's atonement is limited in some way. That's true, because all true Christians will admit that not everyone is saved. Therefore, either Christ's atonement was not efficacious in saving everyone, or it was never meant to save everyone. But either way, it's limited. And, of course, when our Arminian brothers and sisters claim that Christ's atonement made salvation possible for everyone, they are, in essence, admitting that it was not efficacious for everyone. That's a great point. John Murray makes the same point in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which we've used a number of times. He wrote, quote, If some of those for whom atonement was made and redemption wrought perish eternally, then the atonement is not itself efficacious. It is this alternative that the proponents of universal atonement must face. They have a limited atonement, and limited in respect of that which impinges upon its essential character. We shall have none of it. We could put this another way. If the atonement has universal applicability, in other words, if Christ died for all men, then his death didn't really save anyone. It only made salvation possible. Our response then becomes the deciding factor. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we're told that the angel of the Lord spoke to Mary's husband, Joseph, and told him that, quote, 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel didn't say that Jesus would make salvation possible. And this issue is so important that I want to take some time to look at it in reasonable detail. And before we do that, we need to make an important distinction. We need to recognize that there are two completely different kinds of debts that we can owe. And what are those? We can have what is called a pecuniary debt or a judicial debt. The word pecuniary comes from the Latin word for cow or money. A pecuniary debt is a financial debt. So, for example, if I purchase a car without paying the full amount up front, I incur a debt for a particular amount of money. Let's say that I owe $10,000. Now, if some generous person, such as my good friend Mr. Roby, chooses to go to the bank and pay the $10,000 I owe, my debt is paid in full, and the bank has no right to expect any additional payment from me or anyone else. And that would indeed be a very generous thing for me to do. Yes, it would. Uh, But my point is that the bank is not being generous or gracious in any way by accepting your payment on my behalf. They only have the right to be paid $10,000. It makes no difference who pays it, and they have no right to expect any additional payment. The debt is paid in full. In fact, if I didn't know that you had paid it in full and I sent in a payment of $1,000, the bank would be obliged to pay the $1,000 back to me. That's all clear, but what about the other kind of debt, what you called a judicial debt? A judicial debt is forensic, meaning that it has to do with justice and courts of law. If someone murders another person, for example, there is no exact payment in kind possible. Even if the offender is put to death, it doesn't bring back the person who was murdered. In this case, we're really talking about punishment, not repayment. Charles Hodge explained the difference this way, quote, In the case of crimes, the matter is different. The demand is then upon the offender. He himself is amenable to justice. Substitution in human courts is out of the question. The essential point in matters of crime is not the nature of the penalty, but who shall suffer. That is an important point. The essential thing is punishment. As you said, it isn't a matter of repaying some financial obligation. Hodge also brings out another important difference between financial obligations and crimes. And what's that? That the penalty cannot be paid by someone else. As Hodge said, quote, substitution in human courts is out of the question, unquote. If I commit a crime and am sentenced to a year in jail, you cannot serve the sentence on my behalf. Yeah, that too is an important difference. And now let's apply this to the topic of the atonement. When we speak about our sins being paid for, we are not talking about a pecuniary debt. There is no exact payment possible. If I offend God and violate his law in some way, there is no way for me to satisfy that debt with some kind of equivalent payment in kind. In fact, as we've noted before, since God is infinite in his person and glory, when I sin against him, my debt is, in some sense, infinite. Which is an insurmountable problem for us as finite beings. Exactly. But, and here is where God's amazing grace, wisdom, and love come into play— God does two things to solve this problem. First, he graciously accepts a substitute in my place, which is something a human court of law will not do. I am the one who deserves to be punished, but God allows my punishment to be taken by another. There's still a problem, though. This substitute has to be capable of satisfying the infinite debt. 
And no mere creature can do that. We can spend eternity in hell, and the debt is still not paid. And so, the second amazing thing God does is to provide an acceptable substitute, one who can pay an infinite penalty. In other words, he provides a substitute whose sacrifice has infinite worth. Jesus Christ, the unique God-man, is that substitute. We will see several times as we move on with our discussion why this distinction, namely that my sin leads to a judicial debt rather than a pecuniary debt, is so important in discussing the substitutionary atonement of Christ. All right, so then we're ready to move on with discussing whether Christ's work of atonement made salvation possible for everyone or if it was only for those who are actually saved. We are, and the first point to make is that because this is a judicial debt, not a pecuniary debt, and because Jesus Christ is infinite God as well as fully man, his death was of sufficient worth to pay for all the sins of every human being who has ever existed or ever will exist. Arminian and Reformed believers agree on this point. Therefore, the real question and dispute is not over the worth of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Rather, the real question could be put this way, for whom did Christ die? Did he die to pay for the sins of all men? That's the position taken by Arminians, Lutherans, Dispensationalists, and others, which I'm calling the Arminian position for brevity. Or did Christ die only for the elect? That is the Reformed, and I would say, biblical position. How do you want to approach resolving this question? Let's begin by looking at some of the evidence usually adduced in favor of the Arminian position. Very well. I know that Arminians often cite 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 in support of their position. In that verse, the apostle wrote that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is one of their strongest pieces of support. But when you examine it carefully in context, it really doesn't directly argue for their position at all. This verse alone is perfectly agreeable with either position. Okay, can you explain how that's so? Certainly. First of all, phrases like the whole world can mean different things in different contexts. For example, in Luke chapter 2 verse 1, we read that, quote, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, unquote. I've used the English Standard Version here because it renders the Greek more literally. The question is, obviously, what is meant by all the world in this verse? The 1984 NIV that we usually use renders the verse this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The word Roman is not in the original Greek, but it is certainly an accurate translation nonetheless. It's obvious that Caesar Augustus did not issue a decree that a census should be taken in China, for example. So given the context, all the world means the entire Roman world. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. And so in the same way, we need to ask what the phrase the whole world means in 1 John 2.2. The verse says that Jesus Christ, quote, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, unquote. Notice that the whole world is contrasted with a smaller group of which the apostle and his readers are members. He refers to, quote, our sins, unquote. So we need to know who this group he refers to with the word our is. R.C. Sproul does a good job of looking at this verse in his book, What is Reformed Theology? 
and he notes that the word our could possibly refer to Christians in contrast with non-Christians, and if that were the case, then the whole world would refer to non-Christians and the verse would support the Arminian position. What's the other option that Sproul mentions? That the word our could refer specifically to Jewish believers. Sproul writes that one of the central questions of the church's earliest formative period was this, who is to be included in the New Covenant community? If you take the word our in this sense, then the phrase the whole world would simply refer to non-Jewish believers. There would be no reason to assume that it refers to unbelievers at all. That makes good sense and certainly shows that this verse is consistent with either view and does not by itself point us one way or the other. I look forward to continuing this discussion, but we're out of time for today. So I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'll do our best to respond. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical soteriology and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.